believe it or not, um, this summer, July 4th to be exact, marks 20 years since I preached my very first sermon. And it wasn't great, uh, just to be honest. Uh, the first time I ever preached, I said pretty much everything I knew about the Bible in five minutes. And then for the next 10 minutes, I said a whole lot of stuff I didn't know about the Bible. And in the 20 years that have passed since then, I don't know if I've gotten any better, but I know I've gotten longer. Say amen. No, don't say amen. So over the past 20 years, I have thought a lot about preaching. I have, I know, preached well over a thousand times. I've read a lot of books about preaching. I've taken classes about preaching. I've done all this stuff to try and figure out what makes preaching good. And I figured out that good preaching isn't necessarily good just because it makes the preacher look good. Good preaching should make Jesus look good. I found out that, that preaching isn't necessarily good because it makes you feel good about yourself. Because sometimes good preaching will make you feel terrible about yourself. I found out that preaching is one of those jobs that few people want, but everybody knows how to do. Think about it. Think about it. Because all of us know when we hear bad preaching, don't we? And we know when we hear good preaching. So what is it that actually makes preaching good? Maybe a better way to ask it would be, what is the best sermon that you have ever heard? What's the best sermon you've ever heard? Maybe it was delivered by a charismatic a mega church pastor to a crowd of thousands of people. Maybe it was just an old family friend out in the country somewhere. Maybe it inspired you to greater commitment in your walk with Jesus. Maybe it convicted you of sin. Maybe it comforted you at a time when you were going through tragedy in your life. What is the best sermon that you've ever heard? And I ask all that not because I like to talk about preaching, though I do. Not because I think preaching has fallen on hard times. Even though it has, there are probably less and less people every week in America hearing less and less good preaching, if you think about it. I ask that not because you are about to hear a sermon, if you didn't realize that. But I ask because this summer at Sharon Heights, beginning today and going through about Labor Day, we are going to spend our time studying what I believe is the greatest sermon ever preached. The best sermon ever. And it's not a sermon I preached, I assure you. But it's a sermon that the Lord Jesus preaches in Matthew chapter 5 through 7 that we've come to call the Sermon on the Mount. I believe it is the best sermon ever. And we are going to spend our summer at Sharon Heights on Sunday morning studying what the Lord Jesus teaches us in this sermon. And we're so serious about going deep into what Jesus says in this passages of Scripture that what we're going to do is we're going to come back at 5 o'clock during our discipleship training time, and we're going to have some study groups that are based directly on what you hear on Sunday mornings, to allow you to go deeper, to interact with what you hear in this place. I know sometimes you feel like you're drinking from a fire hydrant on Sunday morning, and if you want to be able to slow down and ask questions directly from the content you hear, then come back tonight at 5 o'clock. We've got DT classes based on these messages you'll be hearing. We've got DT classes for men. We've got DT classes for women. We've got combined classes. Even our youth are going to be going through this. So I want you to come to DT. Tonight at 5 o'clock. And I know some of y'all are thinking, I don't ever come to DT because, you know, I've been. Well, come back. It'll be a good opportunity for you to jump back in. And some of y'all are like, oh, yeah, I do come to DT. But really what you do is you hang out in the security office and talk about the weather. We'd love for you to come to DT, even if you think you're coming to DT. So make it a point to be here at 5 because I think that the Lord Jesus' Sermon on the Mount really is the best sermon that's ever preached. In fact, I think it's impossible to overestimate the significance of what Jesus preaches in the Sermon on the Mount. Even from a historical standpoint, the message of the Sermon on the Mount has impacted people like Martin Luther King Jr. 
It's impacted people like Gandhi, uh, the Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy. He really geeked out over the Sermon on the Mount. And even the atheist writer Kurt Vonnegut said that the Sermon on the Mount represents the highest and greatest human ideals that men should aspire to experience. Politicians have looked for, looked to the Sermon on the Mount for policy ideas and for fodder for their speeches. And even our language that we use every day of our lives is directly influenced from the words that Jesus spoke in the Sermon on the Mount. When we call somebody the salt of the earth, when we call someone a wolf in sheep's clothing, even the most quoted Bible verse in the world today is from the Sermon on the Mount. Judge not that you be not judged. And even the expression, a city set on a hill, that was not Ronald Reagan. Jesus says that in the Sermon on the Mount. Sorry to break that to y'all. I hate to come in and just trash the gipper the first thing. But this sermon that Jesus preaches, it touches on our deepest longings. It touches on our greatest fears. It touches on our truest needs. And it challenges our most deeply held misconceptions. It is, by any measure, the greatest sermon ever preached. And I would go further and say that the Sermon on the Mount are the most important words that any human being has ever spoken. And I think they are the most important words that any human being could ever hear. But I know how it is listening to preaching. When you listen to preaching, you've kind of got a little selfish gene inside of you, don't you? You want to think, what's in this for me? Why should I fight my attention span and make sure that I really zero in on what I'm hearing? So why should you really study and know the words of the Sermon on the Mount? Well, let me just give you a couple highlights this morning. You need to know the Sermon on the Mount because a lot of y'all are really confused about what it means to be truly blessed. All right, you've got the Bible's vocabulary, but you've got the wrong dictionary. Some of you need the Sermon on the Mount because you really struggle to be an effective witness for King Jesus in this world. Some of you need the Sermon on the Mount. Probably all of y'all need the Sermon on the Mount because people have hurt you and you have a hard time loving your enemies. You're looking forward to this, aren't you? You need the Sermon on the Mount. You need the Sermon on the Mount because you worry. You need the Sermon on the Mount because at some point you have struggled with how to pray. You need the Sermon on the Mount because you can be religious for the approval of other people. Jesus is going to touch on that. You need the Sermon on the Mount for a lot of reasons. But the main reason that you need the Sermon on the Mount is because Jesus is your King. And one day you are going to meet Him. And every day between this day and the day that you meet Him, you need Him. And you need to hear from Him about what it really means for Him to be your King. So let's dive in this morning. Matthew chapter 5, verse number 1. And I ask you to stand as we honor the Word of God, hearing what Jesus preaches and says in this great sermon, Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 1. The Bible says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you. When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You can be seated. And I believe Jesus is going to preach to us today 
from this great passage. Now, before he ever says a word in the best sermon ever preached, Jesus does a couple of things that are very, very important for us to understand everything that's happening here in this three-chapter sermon. First, we're told who the audience of the sermon is. That's important if you want to understand what's being said and why it's being said. And the Bible identifies two groups of people that are hearing Jesus preach in Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 1. His disciples are there. Those are the people who back in chapter 4 had left everything behind to follow Jesus. Those are the early adopters who got on board with Jesus from the very beginning of his ministry. People who had repented of their sins, put their faith in him as their Savior, and wanted to learn what it meant to follow him. But the Bible also says that there is a huge crowd that is gathered to hear Jesus preaching. Probably many thousands of people are hearing Jesus preach this sermon. And those are people that think they know something about Jesus, but they don't have the whole story. These are people that maybe think they need Jesus, but they want to make sure they have the whole picture. These are people that think, some of them, that they can use Jesus to accomplish their goals. And there are some people that are here that are probably just here because there's a crowd there and they just kind of got sucked into it. Suffice to say, there are people at every plot point in a spiritual journey hearing Jesus preach this day. There are people who were mature followers of Him, and there were people who were not followers of Him. There were people who were serious about their faith, people who were new to their faith, and people who had not yet come to faith. The Sermon on the Mount is for saints and sinners and everybody in between. Which means today that the Sermon on the Mount is for you. Whether you're following Jesus, whether you're not following Him, whether you've been following Him for decades, or whether you're just starting to come into your relationship with Him, what Jesus says here is for you. But there's something else that's important here in verse number 1. And that is, the Bible says that when Jesus went up to the mountain, His disciples come with Him, the crowd gathers around Him, and then the Bible says that before He preaches, He sits down. Now, we're in a Baptist church in the South. And we have real concrete ideas about how a preacher should look and how a preacher should act. A preacher in the South, he wears a suit and a tie. Because your car salesmen of the world, your lawyers of the world, your politicians of the world let you know that you can always trust somebody wearing a tie, right? Preachers stand up. They, they stand behind the pulpit. They project authority. They raise and lower their voice to make sure you understand they're being serious about what is being preached. You don't sit down to preach. Like, if I want to sit, if I sat down to preach, I would dock my own pay. You know? And I would be, I walk so much when I, when I preach, I, I, I couldn't preach. I couldn't say a word. Why does Jesus sit down when he preaches? Well, for one, that would have been very common for a preacher in Jesus' culture to be seated while he speaks. But the reason it would have been common, and this is more important, is because in their culture, it was a symbol of authority for someone to sit down. A king sat on his throne to give his law. Jesus is assuming a position of authority as he sits down to preach. That's weird to us, I know. But it was not weird to them. And if you read further to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, when it's all over and everybody leaves church this day, you'll find out that it was that idea of authority that stuck in people's minds after they heard Jesus preach. Matthew chapter 7, at the end of the sermon, verses 28 and 29, says this, that when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowd were astonished at His teaching. They just stood there. They didn't know what to do. For He was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. When people heard Jesus preach, They did not leave talking about how smart he was, even though he was smart. When people heard Jesus preach, they did not leave saying, man, that dude's really funny, even though you could make a case Jesus had a good sense of humor. When they left, the thought in their mind was, this guy really believes he has the right to tell me how to live my life. 
And if you understand everything that Jesus preaches in the Sermon on the Mount, these people were people who heard him preach and they left thinking, he really believes he has the right to tell me how to treat people who have wronged me in my past. He really believes he has the right to tell me to seek his kingdom and not to worry. He really believes that he has the right to tell me how to think about my money. He really believes he has the right to teach me how to pray. He really believes that he has the right to teach me about every aspect of my heart and every aspect of my life. Who does this man think that he is? Well, Jesus thinks he is their king. And Jesus knows he is your king. In fact, that's consistent with everything that Matthew has been writing in his gospel up to this point. Because every page, every chapter, every verse of Matthew's gospel has been presenting Jesus as the long-promised, long-awaited King of the Jews. And if Jesus is the King of the Jews, then He is the King of kings. And He is the Lord of lords. Which is not some kingdom that's floating out in heaven somewhere. It means that Jesus has the right to be King in your life. To put it in very, very uh, base terms, Jesus has the right to tell you what to do. Why? Because He's in charge and you're not. That's Matthew's point, and it's how Jesus is going to preach. And in this sermon, there's no part of our life, from our past to our future, inside and out, our relationship to God and our relationship to others. There's nothing that Jesus says, you know, that part's off the table, and I'm just going to let you handle that. Jesus says, no, every bit of it is mine, because I am king. And that really is the main theme of what the Sermon on the Mount is about. It's about what it looks like if Jesus really is the king of my heart. It's about what it's like for Jesus to be king in my life over every area of my life. So that really is what this is all about. And it's a great place for you, uh, if you have somebody in your life that you know, and we all do, somebody that is a little bit confused about what it means to follow Jesus. This would be a great sermon series for you to invite them to come and sit sit through with you. Because it's going to be made clear to them what it really looks like to follow Jesus. Look, y'all, every preacher has their own ideas. Every church has their own opinions. Everybody in the world has their own thoughts about what it means to follow Jesus. It's time we throw that away and listen to what Jesus said himself. Because he's the one who knows best what it looks like when he is king. So here's what we did to make it easier for you to invite people to come to church. We printed a thousand invitations, the size of business cards that have the graphics from this sermon series on them, little information about our church on the back. And all you have to do is put it in somebody's hand and say, I'd love for you to come worship with us at Sharon Heights to hear our pastor. I think you'll like it. Write your phone number on that for me. No, don't do that. Don't do all that. But you can, we got a thousand of these. I'll have them out back and we've got a thousand of them. We paid for them. So somebody needs to give them away. All right. Somebody needs to invite somebody to come to church. And all you have to do is you can give it to somebody at work, give it to somebody in your family, put it in their hands, leave it with a check. Make sure you leave a good tip when you pay. If you're going to have our church name on there, you know, leave it. Good gracious. Leave it, you know, in uh, the liquor aisle at Walmart. Those people need to be here too. So put it out there and see what happens as you invite people to come. And say, this is what it means for Jesus to really be your king. But what Jesus is going to show us in this very familiar opening portion of the Sermon on the Mount, this text we call the Beatitudes, Jesus is going to say this to us. He's going to say, if I really am your king, then I have the right to totally redefine what it means to be blessed. I have the right to reorient your heart about what a real blessing looks like and what it is in your life. So what does it mean to be blessed? Everybody wants to be blessed. Half of y'all came to church today looking for a blessing. What does that mean? When these Beatitudes, Jesus shows us one of the most familiar passages of Scripture in all of the Bible. But if you really look at what Jesus teaches in these verses, 
this looks like it beamed down to us from another world. Because we talk about being blessed, and we're not talking about the same things Jesus is talking about. I mean, just imagine what it would be like if in our culture we codified our own set of Beatitudes. What would they sound like? Blessed are the popular, for they shall be adored. Blessed are the beautiful, for they shall be loved. Blessed are the successful, for they shall make all their dreams come true. Blessed are the retired, for they shall not work. Blessed are the powerful, for they shall not be ignored. But if you spend 30 seconds with this passage of Scripture, you understand that Jesus is talking about a different kind of life. He's talking about a different kind of blessing. Now, at its root, the word blessing, to be blessed, means to be made happy. Jesus is talking about a different kind of happiness that does not come from this world. And more importantly, he's talking about the kind of soul-enriching joy that comes from a life that is lived in harmony with God. When Jesus uses that word blessed, he is talking about somebody who has the smile of God on their life. Somebody who will hear the applause of heaven over the way that they've lived. So what does it mean to be blessed? Now, honestly, there are uh, there's so much in this text of Scripture today that we could spend a week on each of these Beatitudes and still not cover it. Um, there's a couple ways you can break these down. You can say that these mimic the Ten Commandments to some degree. You can say some of these talk about our relationship to God and others to our relationship with people. <clears throat> but I think the best way to dive in is just dive in. So let's go off the deep end and jump in and take them one at a time. Jesus begins by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Happy are the poor. I told y'all this is backward, isn't it? But some people have taken this to say that Jesus really is talking about financial poverty. That's not what he says, is it? He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Sometimes being poor is a blessing directly from God. Sometimes being wealthy is a blessing directly from God. Sometimes people are poor just because they bought too many cigarettes and lottery tickets and they made dumb financial decisions and they got to deal with it. Jesus is not talking about financial poverty. He's talking about spiritual poverty. He's talking about people who have realized that they have nothing in and of themselves to offer to God. Those people who will own their spiritual bankruptcy and say, there's nothing in me that is any good to earn the favor of God. Those people will be blessed and those people will experience the kingdom of heaven. In fact, this is kind of what the Sermon on the Mount is designed to do. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, you will see Jesus laying out this standard of righteousness that is impossible for you to achieve. He's saying, this is how your life really will look if you live with me as your king and you really please God. And none of us can do it. And Jesus is laying this impossibly high standard of righteousness out there so that we would look at ourselves and say, I can't do that. I need somebody to do that for me. And as we look to Jesus to do it for us, our hearts are transformed so that we really do have the capacity to live this kind of life. There's a lot of comparison between the Sermon on the Mount and the Ten Commandments. And we need to understand that what God is doing in the law and what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is He's taking these Old Testament laws and He's internalizing them in our hearts. So you know what the Ten Commandments are, right? I mean, I hope you know them. Otherwise, how are you keeping them, right? So one of the Ten Commandments says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. We feel good about that because... You know, there's no idols in here made out of sticks or stones or any of that stuff. But we've all worshipped our careers. We've worshipped success. We've worshipped our pleasure. We've worshipped our autonomy, our independence. We've worshipped all kinds of things. One of the Ten Commandments says that you shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. You ever hit your thumb with a hammer? One of the Ten Commandments says that you should honor the Sabbath day to keep it holy. 
some of y'all really struggle on Sundays because Chick-fil-A is not open. One of the Ten Commandments that Jesus will deal with directly here is the commandment, Thou shalt not murder. But Jesus says, if you are angry with somebody in your heart without a cause, He said, you are guilty of murder. One of the Ten Commandments says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Jesus says, if you've lusted after somebody in your heart you're not married to, you're guilty of adultery. Let's just move on, shall we? What Jesus is doing in this text, He is saying to us that you cannot in and of yourself live a life that truly pleases me. You cannot live a life that truly honors me. So what you have to do to really come to God and enter the kingdom of heaven is you have to turn your pockets out and come to Him like a spiritual beggar and say, God, I cannot do this. I need You. God, I cannot do this on my own. I need Jesus. Lord, there's nothing good in me to commend me to You. And Jesus says, if you come that way, you will find grace and you will find the gate of heaven swung wide open for you to walk right through. Friend, understand. What Jesus is teaching you today is great news because it says that what connects you to God is not your goodness. What connects you to God is your badness. What connects you to God is not what you have to offer Him. What connects you to God is what He has to offer you. And so when people get to heaven, they do not go in with their Sunday school perfect attendance badge for 60 years of faithful attendance on Sunday morning and their tax-deductible tithing record saying, Lord, look at I earned it. Look how I earned it. Look at all I did. Everybody that goes to heaven, and the only people that go to heaven, are people who know they have no business being there. And they come to God and say, Lord, I can give you nothing. I've got nothing to offer, but Lord, I take it all from you. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Jesus continues in verse number 4. And that's about as backward as the first one, isn't it? Blessed are those who... Jesus is almost saying, happy are Sad. That doesn't make sense, does it? What's Jesus talking about here? Well, Jesus is not talking about uh, a sour disposition. There are some Christians that it's just miserable to be around them, isn't it? You know what I'm saying? Like every time you're around them, it's like, Lord, help me. It feels like I'm going to a funeral. Jesus is not talking about people who have had their sense of humor washed away in the baptistry. Jesus is not talking about depressive type people. Jesus is not even truly talking about The mourning and the grief that comes from the pain of life. There are other verses that talk about that. Jesus is not talking about that here. Jesus is talking about mourning over our spiritual poverty. He's talking about mourning over our relationship with God that is broken. If I've ever come to the place where I have been poor in spirit, and I realize that there's nothing good in me to commend me to God, and then I've received the grace of God, and I've seen how good God is and how loving He is and how He pursues me and how faithful He is. And then I realize how little I am like Him. That breaks our heart. That's what Jesus is talking about here. It's what the Apostle Paul expressed about himself in Romans 7, 24. He said, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He said, I look at myself and I see the death and decay of sin and I want somebody to deliver me from it. A couple of weeks ago, Uh, there was, tragically, a squirrel or a bird or something that got in the ceiling above my office. And from the ceiling above my office, it went on to its eternal reward. And literally, the day I prepared this sermon, uh, that guy started to let me know he was there. Because he started to smell less than fresh. And so, as the day went on, my whole office started to smell like death. I want y'all to know, I love y'all and I love Jesus. 
But I might have to start a union or something because that's unsafe working conditions, right? And so it started to smell like decay. While I was reading this verse and the Lord was showing me, He's saying, this is the attitude that truly blessed people have because they look at themselves and they smell the stench of their sin. They smell the stench of death in them and they turn to the Lord and they receive His grace. And the more grace they receive, people never tell you this about the Christian life, but the more grace you receive, the closer to God you get, the more you are aware of your own sin. And the more you recognize your need of Him, and the better He gets, and the worse you look. And then the worse you look, the more you need Him, and you turn to Him for the comfort of the gospel. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The only people who are able to breathe the fresh air of God's forgiveness are people who have first caught the terrible stench of their sin. Blessed are those who mourn. Then Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, if this is all I knew about Jesus are these three sentences of this one sermon, I'm not sure I'd really want to follow him. Because he's told me, first, I need to understand that I'm spiritually bankrupt. Then I need to be broken over that spiritual bankruptcy. And now I need to be meek. Who wants to follow this guy? Why would anybody really want to be meek? We don't value the meek in our culture, do we? We value the proud, the powerful, the self-important, the people who have it together and who are able through different means to force their will upon others. But here, Jesus is not saying that meekness is a diminutive, introverted personality. There are introverts who follow Jesus. They have to take his annex every time they come to church because somebody might shake their hand. That's okay. Like If you're an introvert following Jesus, that's great, but that's not meekness. Meekness is not necessarily being quiet. It's not being a pushover. Rather, the idea of meekness, if you go back all the way to the original language as Jesus uses it, the idea is of an animal that has been tamed. It's like a horse with a bit and a bridle in its mouth. Think about a horse with all that power and all that speed, with that little strap in its mouth. Its owner is able to turn it where it wants, stop it when he wants, make it go when he wants. That's what meekness is. And what do you call a horse that has been tamed like that. He's been broke. Jesus is saying that meek people are people who have given the reins of their life over to God. They've been broken when they've understood their own, understood their own sins. And they will say in some way at some point, Lord, I've been in control long enough. It's time for you to take the reins. And then as they give the reins of their lives over to God, they aren't panicked or worried because life is not in their control. They're not trying to get revenge on every grievance that somebody commits against them because their control has been threatened. Instead, they have recognized the emptiness of their own hearts and they've given it all over to God. Some of y'all may think you're very, very meek because you don't think you're powerful in this world, but the truth about you may be that you're so afraid of someone hurting you, someone taking advantage of you, something happening in your life that is going to threaten your ability to control everything that you want to happen that you're simply not trusting in God's purposes for you. I would tell you two things today. First, I would say that there's nobody who exemplified meekness in this world better than the Lord Jesus. Nobody in the world has ever had more power than he had. I mean, he calmed seas, he raised people from the dead, he got aggravated and flipped over temples of the money changers in the temple. Jesus had power. But when the time came when it was God's will for him to stick out his wrists and have them put in handcuffs by people who would lead him to a cross, what did he do? He trusted God's control of his life. Friend, you can trust God's control of your life because God's will for you will never lead you where it led Jesus. 
And second, I would want you to understand that there is a promise in this verse. What is it? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It's not the powerful people that win in the end as much as we believe that, as much as we keep repeating that same line to ourselves over and over again. No, Jesus says it's those people who have given God total control of their lives, those meek people who are under my control, who are in my hand, those people will inherit the earth. And I assure you, it's difficult in life to be meek. But if you can learn to trust this promise, that God will give you what's right, give you what's best, that He will give it all to you, you can be meek. If you can learn to trust God's promises, then you can learn to follow God's will. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be satisfied. Some of y'all thinking finally something we can relate to because I'm getting hungry. Amen. Wish a preacher would hurry up. People, in Jesus' day though, they understood more about hunger than we do. I mean, for a lot of the people who are hearing Jesus preach this day, uh, having enough food to eat was a day-to-day struggle. I look around here today and I say, we're doing all right. We're okay. But we still get hungry, don't we? And even more than getting physically hungry, we know what it's like to have a deep spiritual hunger inside of us that nothing seems to be able to satisfy, don't we? We know what it's like to hunger for success and feel like we never can get enough of it. Or even if we do finally reach all of our goals, we feel like it just doesn't satisfy the way I thought it would. We hunger for affection. We hunger for Uh, We starve for money or approval or all these other things, but they never satisfy for long. It's all spiritual junk food that makes us feel okay for a little while. Then it goes away. But if you get physically hungry, you know you get weird, right? Any of y'all get mean when you get hungry? I'm telling y'all, I have three basic moods. I'm happy, I'm hungry, or I'm sleepy. That is as emotionally complicated as I get. If I'm not happy, then feed me and put me to bed it's like a baby. That's all, that's all I need. And I get mean when I get hungry. get aggravated when I get hungry. And you get hungry long enough, you'll even start to hallucinate. Imagine food that's there that isn't there. Hunger will drive you crazy. And Jesus is talking about a spiritual hunger that matches that, that consumes every other part of our lives. He's saying truly blessed people are people who are hungry, not for blessings, but for righteousness. People who are truly blessed are people who are thirsting for the presence of God. They're thirsting for the knowledge of God. They have to know more about God. It drives every single thing that they do. There's nothing in their appetite for Jesus. There's no part of their life that's untouched by their appetite and their longing for Him. But I wonder how many of us are trying to deaden that appetite for Jesus by satisfying it with other things. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Their hearts will be satisfied in Jesus. And I hadn't planned on saying this today, but I'd like to just let you know that if you are here this morning and you are trying to satisfy yourself on anything but Jesus, then you are going to starve yourself to death spiritually, eating junk food that will kill you. But you can be satisfied in Him. You can be satisfied with Him. Then Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. And it seems like Jesus is kind of taking a big turn here because he's not as much talking about our relationship to God as he is talking about our relationship to other people. Blessed are the merciful. But it's true that if we start at the beginning and work all the way down to where we are in the Beatitudes, if we have understood that we are spiritual beggars who are broken over our emptiness and received God's grace as a gift and are hungering for him, then we should realize that God's mercy has been a gift to us that we extend to other people. 
You know, we should be the first people in the world to realize that there are other people in the world. That there are broken people around you. There are people that you interact with every day that need prayer. That need to see the mercy of God. That need to hear about the love of Jesus. The meaning of mercy here is compassion with hands and feet. Jesus is not saying here that His people wish other people well. Jesus is saying that His people do other people good. Some of y'all didn't hear that. I'm going to back up and say that again. Jesus is not saying here that His people wish other people well. He is saying here that His people do other people good. And there is a world of difference between those two. You remember the story of the Good Samaritan that Jesus gives in the Gospel of Luke? That parable is not called the parable of the good intentions. The story is that a man is, is robbed, beat, left for dead on the side of the road. Two guys, the priest, the Levite, two, you know, the preacher and the deacons, basically. They see this dude laying over here broken, and instead of going to the need, they walk away from it. They say, you know, we'd love to help and we'll pray for you, but we don't want to get our hands dirty with all that icky ministry stuff. So they walk away. But then a Samaritan comes, a man who should have been his natural enemy, and what does he do? He throws a dude on his horse, he doctors his wounds, he puts him up for the night, and he gets him the help that he needs. And then Jesus asks, which one of them really was a neighbor to him? Who really showed him mercy? The people who really wished him well, or the guy who did him some good? And Jesus' greater point is that we are the guy who's robbed, broke down, and beat up by sin. And what did Jesus do? Jesus didn't walk by and say, man, I hope y'all get that straightened out. That looks rough. What did Jesus do? He climbed in the ditch with us. He made our problem His responsibility, even though He had no reason to do that other than love. And if He's done that for us, then now we are so blessed in Him, we are in a position to actually do somebody some good. That's what Jesus is saying here. By this we know love, is what the Bible says in 1 John 3. By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has this world's good and sees his brother in need, but closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. That's what Jesus is saying here. Quit talking about how much you love people and go buy a homeless guy a meal. Quit talking about how much you love people and pick up the phone and call somebody when they're hurting and say, I'm praying for you. Quit talking about how much you love people and when somebody's life is falling apart in a hospital room, go there with them. Pray for them. Put hands and feet to compassion. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So let's stop at this point. How are you doing so far? A lot of us can fake our way through the first few Beatitudes, right? I mean, we're in church. We love Jesus. Hey, man, look at us. We're poor in spirit. I like that guy who bags my groceries at the grocery store. Man, I really am merciful. But Jesus ratchets it up a little bit when he says, blessed are the pure in heart. He says, truly... Blessed people, people who are truly a part of my kingdom, those who really see God, those people are people whose hearts are free from the pollution of selfish motives. Jesus is talking about the kind of heart David prayed for in Psalm 86, 11, when he said, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. What Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians seven thirty five when he talked about an undivided devotion to the Lord. He's talking about a heart that is hungering and thirsting after righteousness, that is so broken over its own spiritual bankruptcy that it is united, single-minded in its pursuit and service of God. 
Blessed are the pure in heart. Now understand, Jesus is preaching to a primarily Jewish audience. And these people were so serious about being externally clean that they made hand-washing part of their religious efforts. And they thought that by all these ritual bathings, they were really earning the right to be pure in the sight of God. Jesus says it's not about what you've done on the outside, it's about who you are on the inside. And I'm just going to be real with you, I struggle with this right here. Because my best acts are mingled and mixed with the most selfish motives. I'll preach in here on Sunday mornings, and sometimes I walk out of the car thinking, man, I killed you. Man, I mean, I killed it. No, I'm not going to let you know that. You will come out there and you're going to shake my hand and say, Brother Jesse, I enjoyed that. That's such a good message. Oh, it's not me, it's him. And by the time I'm cranking up the car, I'm thinking, man, they're so blessed to have such a humble pastor. Next morning, I'll get up and go visit somebody in the hospital and try and pray with them and get on the elevator and think, gosh, I'm so compassionate. But that's the truth about who we are, isn't it? That's the way our hearts work. We do the right things all the time for all the wrong reasons. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart. Those people who really have looked at their spiritual bankruptcy and said, all of the good that I do, that junk needs to be redeemed too. That stuff needs to be repented of. That needs to be under the blood of Jesus. He says, when you do that, then you'll experience so much of the grace of God that you will see Him everywhere. When you're looking to God constantly for grace at your best and at your worst, then you will see the fingerprints of God's grace all over your lives. And you will be the kind of person who will go look upon God in eternity. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. We're about to wind this thing down. Jesus says throughout these Beatitudes that if we have a right understanding of who we are and a right understanding of who He is, then that trickles down into our relationships with other people. So much so that people who truly follow Him, people that are truly blessed, they are people that pursue reconciliation in their relationships. They take upon themselves the responsibility to bring people together. Now, truthfully, human history and our own lives are but one war story after another, aren't they? It's about us fighting for our rights. It's about nations fighting over race and fighting over space. It's about our next covert attempt to get revenge over somebody who's hurt us and to defend our territory. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, not the warmongers. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, not the peacekeepers. He's not merely talking about people who have a live and let live attitude. He's not talking about people who are just easygoing by nature. Jesus is talking about people who aggressively pursue peace. Jesus says it this way, Matthew 18. He says there in the Beatitudes, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall be called the children of God. They will be the sons of God. They will show God's heart in their own relationships. And what is God's heart? God's heart is to reconcile relationships. That's what He did for us, right? What Jesus says in Matthew 18, 12. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went away? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Jesus tells you in Matthew 18 how you make peace. When there's a rift in your relationship, where do you go? I go on Facebook. Not let everybody know how much they tick me off. I mean, obviously, 
I go to all my friends in Sunday school class and let them know how disappointed I am in this other person. Jesus says, when somebody sins against you, you go to them alone. And you take it upon yourself to pursue peace in your relationship. Because God took it upon himself to pursue peace with you. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. He does not say, blessed are the troublemakers. Like some of y'all, it just has not dawned on you that you've been in church for 40 years and you've never had a pastor you liked. You worked at six different major companies. You never had a boss that you could stand to work for. You've been married 17 times and you never could find just the right person. And you've never done the math and realized, hey, I'm the common denominator. Jesus did not say, blessed are the troublemakers who are always looking for a fight to get their way. Blessed are the peacemakers who lay aside their rights for the good of their relationship. Because that's what Jesus did at the cross. Man, I'd like to preach there for a little bit. But we got to get to the persecuted. Verse number 10, the last beatitude. And you could say these are two, but we'll take them together in verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Jesus says what may be the strangest thought of all. It's a blessing to be rejected by the world for following Him. It's a blessing to be so devoted to Jesus that the world looks at you and says, that is not right. And the world almost tries to expel you. Now, these Beatitudes, it's a peculiar thing. These Beatitudes that Jesus gives, these are values that we respect in other people. These are values we would aspire to have. But when you actually see this lived out, it makes people who aren't following Jesus very uncomfortable. And Jesus says those people may persecute you. They may reject you. But that means that you are blessed enough to be like Jesus, that the same world that hates you, or hates him, hates you. Jesus would tell his disciples, he would teach them that. He would say, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, he says, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Then he says in John 18, 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. He says to his followers, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Jesus says, they rejected me. Do you think they're going to love you if you're really like me? Paul would write in 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy 3.12 that all those who live godly in Christ Jesus would suffer persecution. You know, I think about this on Memorial Day weekend that we are so quick to say things like we are here because of those people who in our armed services, laid their lives down so that we could have the right to worship freely. And we should honor that sacrifice. And thank God we do have the right to worship Him freely. But here's the fact. There are people in this world that don't. There's nobody heard Jesus preach in Matthew chapter 5 that had an understanding of First Amendment religious liberty. None of them did. Nobody had ever conceived of anything like that. There are people in the world today who are worshiping Jesus that don't have any constitutional rights. Their government wants to eradicate them. Would you be here? Would you gladly own the name of Jesus if you did not have the rights that we celebrate on this weekend? Jesus says if you would, that is a blessing because it proves that our faith comes from another world. And if our faith comes from another world, then it is faith that will take us to another world. And then Jesus says you should rejoice because, look, that puts you in the company of the prophets they persecuted before you. Y'all do realize that they did not throw Daniel into the den of puppies, right? The story is not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown into the hot tub. People suffered greatly for the name of Jesus. 
They suffered greatly for the name of God. And Jesus says, if the world turns against you, but you know that I have blessed you and you know that I love you, then the world turns against you, you can be against the world because I'm for you and because you're for me. And this is, folks, this is a shock to the nervous system of people who crave the approval of those around them. Crave those likes on Facebook. We crave people saying we are good enough, saying we measure up, saying that we are valuable and saying that we are worthy of their love. Jesus says, you are not okay because people accept you. You are not okay because the world loves you. You are okay because I accept you. You are okay because I love you. Because when you were poor in spirit and you came to me with your pockets turned out and said, Lord, I have nothing to give to you. I brought you in and gave you the kingdom of heaven. And if I've done that for you, if I've given you that approval and I've blessed you in that way, then what blessing or what approval are you going to find in the world that would compare to that? Blessed are those who are persecuted. There was, in the early 90s, I want to say 1994, a book written that some of you probably heard of, many of you may have read, called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I have a copy of that book. I have not read that book because I'm not very effective, I guess. Um, Whatever. But the author of that book, Stephen Covey, there is one part of that book where he says that if you want to be successful in your life, here's what you do. He says, you imagine that you are at your own funeral. Now, that's not going to happen. I mean, you'll probably be there, but not like he's talking about. If you're not at your own funeral, there's going to be a story and a half somewhere, okay? But you are going to have a funeral one day. And Stephen Covey says that if you want to be successful, here's what you do. You imagine your funeral. And you imagine the three or four most important or influential people in your life. Your kids, your spouse, people that have mentored you, people that have shaped you, those people. And imagine they are delivering the eulogy at your funeral. Then he says, what do you want those people to say at your funeral? If you could write it down and they would say it, what would you write down? Then he says what you do to really be successful in life is you live so that that can actually happen. So that those people can actually say that and not lie at your funeral. That is true success. That's a pretty good definition of success, isn't it? Well, think about your funeral. And think about what Jesus says in the Beatitudes. Is there anything greater that could be said about you? than he was, she was, poor in spirit. Recognized that they were not good in and of themselves, but received everything as a free gift of God's grace. Is there anything better that could be said about you? He was, she was always grieved over her own shortcomings, but always comforted by the grace of God in the gospel. Is there anything greater that could be said about you than they really were a meek person? They had more power than they showed, but it was always in the control of the hand of God. That person really hungered and thirsted after righteousness. Nothing in their life compared to their pursuit of God. Nothing could satisfy them but Jesus. They were merciful. They didn't just talk about doing good. They actually did somebody some good in this world. Sincere in heart. They were not perfect. They were not a mixed bag of conflicting motives. They were a peacemaker, not a troublemaker, not a warmonger. They actually tried to bring people together. They were even persecuted at times, rejected because of their faith in Jesus. But they understood that his approval meant more than the world's approval. Is there anything better that can be said about any of us when this life is over? If they can say that at your funeral, and I want you to know you have been blessed. You have been blessed.
So what I want us to do as we have our invitation today is this. I want you to stand with me, please. And I want you just to bow your head and close your eyes. There is a lot of content in those Beatitudes. And it goes from one corner of our hearts to another. From one part of our lives to the next. It covers everything about who we are. But I know some of you have have been challenged today. And you've realized that there are places in your life where you have defined what it means to be blessed in a different way than Jesus your King does. What I'd like to do is I'd just like to pray for you. So would you put your hand up today and say, I need prayer. I see your hand, brother. I'm going to pray for you. I see hands going up all over this place. I've defined what it means to be blessed by the way the world defines it, the way the culture defines it, maybe even the way the church defines it, but not the way Jesus defines it. And I would like for that to change. I want to pray for you. I want to pray for you. I see hands going up all over the place. Now, here's the deeper question. The deeper question is this. Some of you may be here today and you would have to admit honestly, just honestly, all right, that if this is what it looks like to follow Jesus and to be blessed, then you might not be following him at all. Maybe you believe in this cultural Jesus we preach in Alabama, but are you really following this Jesus who said your life should look this way? Maybe you've realized today, you know, I'm not really following him, but I want to because I want that kind of life. I have nothing good to present to him, but I want to receive his grace. Would you put your hand up? I want to pray for you. I see your hands going up, and I want to pray for you today. Say, I want to really follow him like this. If I can pray with you in this altar, grab me by the hand and we'll be happy to pray. If I can answer some questions, I'll be happy to. Anything I can do, I want to help you. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful, Lord, that you can take people like us who have nothing good in ourselves to give you, and you make us truly blessed. You make us your children. You let us see you. You take us into the kingdom of heaven. Lord, we are a blessed people. But God, you know that we have this tendency to think about blessings totally different than you do. We need you to change us. So do your work in the lives of those that are here now, I pray. Help us never to settle. Help us never to settle for the wrong definition of what it means to be blessed. And I claim that and ask it in the name of Jesus. And amen. While we sing, if you need to come, this altar is open.